0: Welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're testing that old adage about screaming and sound and space. Our guest is S.A. Barnes. In her other writing life, as Stacey Cade, she writes YA romance, but in this one, she's the author of Dead Silence, a robust answer to the question of whether you can set horror in outer space. Yes. Yes, you can. We're not debating it anymore. Dead Silence has all the ingredients for quality orbital terror. The discovery of an abandoned ship. Signs that something has gone badly wrong on board. A ragtag crew of blue-collar rocketeers. You may think you've heard this tale a few times already, but you haven't. This is something wholly new. A story that looks back to the gothic origins of the haunted house as much as it does towards a sci-fi future. There is that looming shadow of the subgenres great to contend with, of course, and we talk about Alien and Event Horizon, but also The Shining and other great ghost stories. We discuss the rarity of romance in contemporary horror, we share our anxious responses to strange sounds, and we ask whether going into space would be worth it if you had to share it with Jeff Bezos. So, off we go, boldly or otherwise, to the darkest depths of the cosmic abyss. Even there, it seems, a house can be haunted. Let's talk scared. Well, hello, Stacey, and thanks for joining us on Talking Scared.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: How are things, first of all, and where do we find you today, and how is life treating you? Uh,
1: life is okay. You know, I think the, the entire world rolled over, we're dealing with uh, the side effects of COVID at the moment, uh, so a little, little scarier here now than, than it was earlier in the year. I am in Illinois. I'm in the far northern suburbs, about 50 miles outside of Chicago, and what's fun for me, of course, is that it's 11 in the morning here, and it's evening, I think, where you are, and that is just so cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The time zone difference thing still causes me weekly consternation, where Google doesn't doesn't seem to account for daylight savings being different in one country and the next. And it's endless stress. And it gets worse because in, in a few months, I'm speaking to quite a few Antipodean authors. And trying to work out the time difference on that is just beyond my mind, really. So, so yeah, Manchester to Illinois, that I can kind of <laughs> deal with.
1: Yeah. It's a little it's a little like one of those things When I was sitting there, you know, getting ready for this this morning. I'm like, I got this right. Right. It was 11 my time, not five my time. I was <laughs> I was trying to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, we, we made it work. We reconciled it. But as I said, I'm delighted to have you because as I tweeted just this morning, 2022 has already started extremely well in terms of horror fiction. I've read three books so far this year and they've all been completely top drawer. And your new novel, Dead Silence, is the third of those books. And I finished it last night at about 2.30 a.m. because that's how gripping it is. Genuinely love this book.
1: Thank you so much. That is awesome. I I always feel like my goal is if I can make you lose sleep to keep reading, I I feel like that's a success, you know?
0: Exactly that, yeah. It wasn't quite so nice when I woke up at half seven in the morning with my dog licking my face, but, you know, (laughs) at the time it was great. And it's always nice to talk to an author whose book I genuinely enjoyed because, you know, it just, it gives that extra frisson to the interview. But it's also especially nice to talk to an author about a book that takes horror and therefore the conversation in new directions. And Dead Silence definitely does that because for the first time, we are talking horror in space, um, which is is a thrill for me. So, but before I say any more, can you introduce us to your story and kind of set the scene?
1: Absolutely. So the quick description, the way the sort of shorthand that I use is the Titanic meets the shining set in space, but really in a more long, a slightly longer answer is it is set in the near future. It's about 120 years from now. And It is about a crew of people who are out working on communication beacons, the idea being that we have put beacons out in space to make instantaneous communication easier with our farther-flung ships and colonies, and these are the people responsible for maintaining and updating them. They are, however, on their last assignment because they're going to be replaced by technology. They're going to be replaced by a smart ship, essentially, or a smart machine. And they are going back to have to find new jobs or hopefully a job at all when they get back to Earth. And so you have a crew of five, and Claire uh, Kovalik is our team leader, and she is not particularly thrilled about having to go back to Earth. She prefers to be out in space. And so when they're finishing up their current assignment, they pick up this very strange distress signal. It's old. It doesn't have a lot of information. It's just weird. Um, And so Claire, of course, because she doesn't really want to go back to Earth, doesn't have a whole lot left for her on Earth, wants to go check this out. So she sort of kind of you know, talks the others into it or more or less says, hey, I'm in charge. We have to go do this. We're required to go you know, check on this, even though it's well outside their zone. They go out there and they find this old ship. It's 20 some years old. It's a luxury liner. It was the first luxury space liner. So think Titanic, you know, uh, out in space. It was going to go on a tour of the solar system and it vanished and no one knew what happened to it. It was presumed lost, exploded, damaged in some way. And here it is. And so what they quickly realize, Claire, sort of at the front of this, is that if they claim it under salvage laws, which I based on current earth, you know, sea salvage laws, they'll get a percentage of either the insurance claim or, you know, what the ship is worth. And it was a very, very expensive ship. It's a very luxury ship. There's a lot of conversation about, you know, gold gold water faucets and, you know, real wood <laughs> paneling and, you know, stuff like that. And it's full of all the wealthy, ce- it was full of all the wealthy celebrities and, you know, influencers and athletes and that sort of thing. So they decide to go on board to try to make a claim on this. Um, and of course, that's where everything uh, sort of goes in a terrible, terrible direction. And that's, I'm going to stop there for fear of spoilers.
0: <laughs> in last week's episode. Mm-hmm which is a strange place to start, but I'm going to. In last week's episode, I spoke to an author called Ali Wilkes about her debut novel, All the White Spaces. Now, having read her book and yours in quick succession, it strikes me that they actually have a lot in common because they're both about exploration and these kind of anti-human frontiers, places where humans are not in their comfort zone. Ali's book took us to the frozen wastes of the Antarctic You take us to the kind of the desert of space. And then, like her, you also throw this spectral menace at us. So I thought, right, okay, that's an interesting comparison. I thought I'm gonna ask the same question to start, which is how did you come up with the idea of crashing the supernatural into such a unique setting?
1: That is that is such a great question. And actually, that book that you're talking about, Ali's book, I am so excited for and cannot wait to read. I have not gotten the chance to read it, but it is on it is on my list. And we because I think we must be having her book must come out roughly at the same time. So we've been sort of showing up on lists and interacting a little bit. And I'm super excited to read her book. So, OK, so the supernatural in this setting. Basically, it comes down to two things. One, I am super obsessed and have always been obsessed with ghost stories. So, pretty much, I'll try to find any way to work ghosts into a story. But more than that, I, you know, we see all flavors of science fiction, right? You see all kinds of people, all kinds of, you know, worlds that have been created. And, you know, sometimes they're based on human, based on Earth, sometimes they're completely different. And I thought, you know, where are the people who see ghosts? If you presume, Right now that people can see ghosts, you know, that all the people who are mediums or people who've just had supernatural experiences, if those are real, then why do they stop when we leave this planet? Like, why Why are they not part of this population? So I was really sort of intrigued by that idea, mainly because I just thought you know, that would be a cool way to combine two things that I love. And I am always I'm a sucker for a haunted house story. I love, love haunted house stories. And this was a way to do a haunted house story that I had not seen yet. And as a writer, for me, I can't speak for anybody else, obviously. But for me, I'm always looking to entertain myself first. Because if I can entertain myself first, then I feel like I've got a better shot of entertaining other people. If I'm bored with it, I mean, odds are somebody else is going to be too. So that's sort of where that came from.
0: Right. OK, well, you've opened up a kind of can of worms or maybe a can of elephants in the room there. OK. Because I, I think I imagine it's almost impossible to write a horror story set in space without considering comparisons to Alien and Event Horizon, because those are the two, you know, big daddies in this arena. And, and we know they've spawned so many lesser imitations already. How did you cope with their looming presence in the background of this particular subgenre,
1: so those are two of my favorite, absolute favorite movies. So I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that I avoided it. I, I think I kind of leaned into it. Honestly, uh, I will be honest and say that uh, Alien is not my favorite, but Aliens, the second one, is. So that's really, I, I feel like that influence you can see quite a bit in this book, and Event Horizon. I ju- well, a go ahead.
0: No, no, I was gonna say there's a character called Vola who I kept expecting to say "Game over, man, game over."
1: <laughs> yes, he is my uh, my charming. Uh, well, no, I won't use that word. He's my charming jerk. He is. He is. I hope <laughs> that he is endearing in some way. But yes, you're like, oh man, he's that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. and I yes, that could very well have been uh, part of that. I, for me, the influence comes from. I was really intrigued when I was first started writing this book. I was getting feedback from, from some other authors, critique partners, and they're like, "Why are you starting this after things have already happened? It is the book is in two different timelines. It's in the present where bad, bad things have happened, and we're dealing with the fallout of that. And then it's in goes into the past where we're literally them finding the ship and that sort of thing. And they're like, "This is like set up like a sequel. Why don't you just tell the story?" And I'm like because to me, it's about that idea of not being believed, of being someone who is. Trying to do the right thing, whatever that is, or believes they're doing the right thing, and people won't believe. And I'm like, that is very much the setup for aliens in the beginning, where she is, where Ripley is, you know, standing there talking to the corporation. They're like, oh, but you know, money, and (laughs) we don't believe you, and colony, and whatever. And so that was a big influence for me. Event Horizon, I I love that movie. I had not seen it in a long time, and then after I turned this book in, I went back and watched it again just because. I love it. And it was really funny because there's a scene, I don't know if you remember in uh, Dead Silence, where they get onto the ship and they're going into the um, the cargo bay. There's all this stuff floating around because of the lack of gravity. And there's a. two mentions, Claire mentioned seeing a coffee cup kind of float by. And then I went and watched or horizon. i was like, oh, look, coffee cup. I'm like, that must have been printed on, <laughs> on my subconscious. So I, I loved that idea of somewhere where there's still evidence that people have just been there, right? Kind of like Pompeii, right? You know, there's, Something has happened and you can still see the humanity, even though the humans are gone. That, to me, is the most intriguing part of Event Horizon, which, you know, I I think I tried to sort of, you know, adapt in my own way in Dead Silence.
0: All of that makes perfect sense. And I can see the influence of, of those Both of those films, but particularly Event Horizon. Because over the years, lots of people have interpreted Alien as a haunted house movie in space. That phrase that you just used. Though personally, I think that Event Horizon actually fulfills that brief slightly better. But Dead Silence succeeds far more than either of those stories in actually doing that. In putting a traditional haunted house story into orbit. Because there's no need for metaphor or interpretation to make your book that, you know, whereas I think with Alien and Event Horizon, you've got to kind of recontextualize things. And there's a bit of interpretive reach to kind of say it's a haunted house. But yet yeah, there isn't with yours. It is a haunted house in space. And was that your clear mission from the start to kind of gothicize space, for want of a better word?
1: I love that. And thank you for saying that. Yes, I, I have no problem with the influences being clear. I was obviously influenced by those two films, but I do hope that it has you know come together in something new. That is definitely my intention. And I think you're right. Haunted House in Space could apply to either of those things, but there's a reason why I, I honestly think it's the ship that does most of the work on that. The fact that I wanted to do a luxury liner, that it is in fact somewhere where people, not Not soldiers, not colonists, not, you know, these are, these are just people. It is basically a haunted mansion, for lack of a better term, in space. Uh, because these are all wealthy people and the people who work for them. But I always think about like the classic haunted house tale. And it's usually the crumbly Victorian mansion on a hill that the kids dare each other to go up onto the porch. You know, it's never like a small, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not the warehouse. It's usually in a classic haunted house where it's literally a house and it's usually a big one because I think there's that idea of whatever's happening around the corner is always scarier than what's right in front of you. And I feel like that the ship setting being like a, a Titanic or a luxury liner and large and you know, um, having those trappings of luxury sort of does a lot of the the work for that. Mm-hmm. So I, I really wanted to do that to me. And, and honestly, the motivation was that, which is I'm a giant chicken. I'm scared of everything. Um, <laughs> but I've always found it fascinating. Actual Titanic, you know, the stuff that they were able to see, like the captain's, the tub and the captain's quarters and the things that they were able to bring up from the bottom, these really personal items that really speak to the people who were there. And that's, that was what I was attempting to sort of bring was that connection. This is not just an empty place. This is, this is personal. These were real people who um, something terrible has happened to them. And now we're in the same spot.
0: And there's something about ships as well. and, And whether it's a ship on the ocean or a ship in space, I think the notion of ghost ships and you talked a moment ago about that sense of, you know, human beings were just here. Um, that's something that really lends itself to ships. To, to to mention Ali Wilkes again, in in the Patreon extra that we did off the back of our conversation, we talked about the phenomenon of ghost ships and Marie Celeste yes. and things like that. And and the, the the creepiest detail is always this thing when they find the trappings of, of domesticity just there, like a plate of, of half-eaten food or a, a pot still on the stove, you know, and that sense that people would just hear. And something inexplicable has happened to them we, we don't know what it was. The sunbank ships that are just perfect for that particular strand of ghost story
1: I one hundred percent agree. I am also obsessed with them i I did a lot of research the mary celeste there's a bunch of them that i that are that are completely fascinating. There's one that I cannot remember off the top of my head. That like literally was going to be, I think it was going to be decommissioned and it broke free and then floated around the ocean for like 40 years. I mean, it was a ghost ship for 40 years.
0: It's called, we talked about this, it's called the SS Bay (laughs) Chimo.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's it.
0: If it's the same one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then there's another one that was actually more recent that I thought was, it was a Russian uh, cruise ship that also same thing was going to be destroyed and that one wasn't out there for as long but they never did find it it was in 2013 and i remember seeing the news articles because there were all these like fantastic tabloid articles about actually it washing up on the uk with like like cannibal rats or some weird like you know oh yeah this
0: is ringing a bell yeah
1: and it was like of course that wasn't true um but it was just that interesting idea and to me what captivated me is this idea i'm sure that that ship had been stripped of everything that they could make money off of but like what if it had like what if you were looking at cabins where the beds were still neatly made and you know the the, the dining rooms were all set up for dinner and there's just nobody there i just i just think that's i just think that's eerie and creepy mm-hmm. and fascinating and yes i'm i'm also a, a ghost ship person the movie ghost ship from 2002 the juliana margulies one it's it is <laughs> I'm trying to think of the nicest word to describe it. I don't think it's a great movie, but I I love it. It's one of, it's one of my favorites.
0: Is that the one with the amazing opening scene with the wire that goes across the ball? Yes,
1: that is it. That's the one. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's one of the greatest opening scenes to a mediocre movie.
1: Yes. I, I, (laughs) I think that is a fair, I think that is a fair way to describe it. Yes. It is a horrifying opening.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's been horrifying. So when, when your characters first explore the Aurora, I don't know if we've named the ship, but yeah, the, 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 the big luxury liner is called the Aurora. When they go on board for the first time, they find all sorts of nasty scenes. And, and the one that really stood out for me is the first body they find. And, and if you don't mind, I'm going to briefly quote this. They're kind sure. of exploring like the wealthier, you know, the, the, the first class section of the, of the ship. And they go into a bedroom and all of a sudden one of them gasps. And and to quote, beyond the half wall in the bedroom, a young woman, a girl really drifts silently in the darkness above the king size bed, her slim legs and vulnerable looking bare feet peek out from beneath the gently undulating hem of her white dress. So she's floating there because there's no gravity. So she's floating above the bed, but that is an intensely gothic image because it immediately evokes all kinds of things. So it's like a possession narrative with, you know, the young girl floating above the bed, you know, taken by demons. And there's there's an old school gothic romance there in that that w- white dress and her vulnerable body and things like that. And And that scene alerts us right away that as much as we're reading a science fiction novel with all its futuristic trappings, we're also deeply into the realm of gothic supernatural fiction of the most traditional kind. And I just think it's a great jumping off point.
1: Thank you so much. I, you know, it's funny when you hear other people's perspectives, you know, I never thought about it that way, but all of those things would be things that I have loved and absorbed over the years in reading. I loved gothic romance, I still love gothic romance um all the like phyllis whitney and oh i cannot remember the other woman's name where it was always the 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 governess who was being taken to the very jane eyre-esque uh going to the big house and there's you know strange sounds in the night and running around them you know the moors in her white nightgown um yeah. you know yeah very much and i i love all of those things so i the way that i describe this book is it's it's everything that that triggers my you know ooh i want to read that that I i really just kind of offloaded everything that i could that kind of fit together in this um to make it as interesting as possible. Like I said to me, I at the time that this that I was writing this book, I was coming off of writing a YA books. I had been writing YA books for about, I don't know, eight or ten years. And you know, the market was shifting and what I was interested in they were not buying. So I was kind of in a frustrating career slash writing point and decided I'm gonna write something that just interests me. Like I don't I don't care. So that is where this came from. I just sat down and wrote I think the first eighty pages, which takes you to the point or I'm saying this very carefully, but Neil, you will know what I'm talking about, which is where they get onto the Aurora and they make that discovery by the stairwell. Um, And Mm -hmm. that takes you to that point. And I sent it in to my agent at the time, because this is really out in left field for me as a writer, very far from what I was doing. And she's like, first of all, this is not, because I thought I was running a science fiction thriller. She's like, this is not a science fiction thriller. This is horror. Second, you need to write the rest of it. (laughs) And I said, okay, all right, that's good. So I, it doesn't surprise me that all of those those elements are in there in terms of the supernatural and gothic fiction. I'm glad they come across. I'm I don't know that I could claim that I did it intentionally I, as much as I would love to.
0: Well, very honest, because a lot of times when, when I say something, people just go, oh, I'm so glad you got that. <laughs> so I like that you admit that that wasn't an intentional thing. Um, but what one thing that I I do wonder whether it, whether it was intentional. You, you you mentioned that you you know you have a whole other writing career under you know the name Stacey Cade, and you write YA and you write romance fiction. And when I was reading this book, th- there is a real kind of rich strand of romance in it, um, which probably sounds odd to people who are just hearing the description of this story. But there's a, yeah, there's, a there's a love story, and. When I read that, it, it kind of jarred me, not in a bad way, but in, in a way that made me realise how much or how little, rather, romance just does not feature in horror anymore. You know, if a woman falls in love with a man in a horror novel these days, chances are one of them's a serial killer, you know? And, <laughs> yes, And I wonder whether that was just an intentional thing or an unintentional overlap with your other writing life.
1: It it was intentional. I did it consciously for a couple reasons. The first is because uh, Claire, as a person, Claire Kavalik, who's our team leader and our main character, struggles with for lack of a better term, intimacy, for being not intimacy, like as in physical or sexual, but in terms of, of just being vulnerable and letting somebody in, sharing her problems and caring about somebody without worrying that something is going to happen to them. She sort of holds herself at a distance, even with these people that she's very close with, both physically and, you know, they should, friendship-wise, her crew. She trusts them, but only to a point because she doesn't let herself feel things so of course what's the biggest challenge with that is to present her with something that she wants but feels like she can't have which is a relationship that would be a romantic relationship of some kind and um i was very aware and tried to be very conscious that i didn't go too far with it because to me it is a horror sci-fi horror it is not a romance you know sometimes you can have a romance that has sci-fi horror elements i wanted to make sure my balance was right on that um but also to me What is the most interesting in any book are the interconnections between people. Yes, it's really cool to have a haunted ship. Yes, it's really cool to have whatever technology. But to me, it's about the people and how they interact with those things, how they bring their trouble, their past, their trauma to bear on this situation. So I recognize that it is not a thing that we see a lot these days. But I also feel like, you know, the vast majority of people um, do at some point have a significant other relationship in their life. And why should that not be part of the story? I mean, obviously that's another thing could be influenced by, you know, the romance in aliens is very slight, but I think it's there. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of some other more recent ones where, but you're right. Typically it turns out either that person is, is a romantic interest so they can be killed later so that the main character will have to feel pain or they are, um, you know, they're the bad guy and, you know, we're, we're, This is to kind of mess with people and i you know you can certainly do that but i i just i just liked the idea of you know putting that in there because i think that's what humans do when you're Mm -hmm. trapped in a small space and you like somebody i mean yeah (laughs) right
0: completely yeah and and it's interesting as well because claire is somebody who is so uncomfortable as you say with any kind of emotional intimacy um but that weirdly and and quite wonderfully also creeps into the, the nature of the supernatural because the, what, we won't go into it too much, but one of the, one of the reasons Claire struggles so much with intimacy is because of this horrendous experience she had as a child, um, when for various reasons she spent a lot of time alone as the only survivor of an off-world disaster waiting for rescue. And and there's this line that I read, and I quickly underlined it because I'm happy to deface books. Um, <laughs> she's remembering her time as a child in this situation, and she says that I was alone and somehow not. And that, to me, is the absolute distillation of what a haunting is. To be alone, yet somehow not.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I to me, that is the creepiest thing, right? Because you are having to deal with it, whatever is happening. No one else can see it. No one else is, I mean, somebody else might not even be there, but there's something else going on. And I, I guess part of what I'm intrigued, I think, a theme that will continue to run through my work or does even now is that this idea of reality we all sort of think that this is a solid thing right this is real this is not but really reality is agreed upon Mm -hmm. you know it's what we all decide that it is and some people's experience with reality may be very different and that is the case with her so she is alone both in the sense that there are no other people there in that instance not in the same form anyway and But, you know, alone in the sense that no one else is experiencing those things. Like, even if the whole room were full of people, it's not the same thing. She is alone, um, even if she's not alone, if that makes sense.
0: Well, exactly, yes. And that thing about reality being a bit, being subjective and plastic, that's really interesting in this book, because you've already mentioned the sort of, uh, what's the phrase, the the impact of The Shining, the inspiration of The Shining. You've already mentioned that. And it it is really evident in certain scenes because um, there are these scenes where there are these ghostly after images of these grand parties and black tie events that took place on this ship, which is essentially a floating overlook hotel. Um, and I feel <laughs> like th- those scenes are strongly evocative of, of The Shining. But, the other ties to shining is that Claire has a certain susceptibility to ghostly presences. You, you could say she has a little of the shine, maybe, you know that she she's a bit more aware of the spectral than people around her. And then later on, we find out that the cause of the ghostly sightings that everyone's having on this ship are more complex than traditional ghosts and that but But Claire's experiences predate that cause. So it's this further wrinkle in the idea of whether these ghosts are real or manufactured or something else entirely, because people are experiencing them in different ways and for different reasons. And was it important for you to keep that sense of ambiguity and that tension as to the nature of the events and the supernatural?
1: Yes, absolutely. Because what I wanted to do is, you know, to your point earlier about doing something new, I really was aware because I love all those things. I was really aware of what had been done, and I wanted to. I wanted to make sure we were taking it in a different direction. I, I plus, I feel like speaking of reality and you know our perception of reality and what's real and what's not. I love the idea, or rather, I'm more comfortable with the idea that we don't really understand how everything works, right? Mm -hmm. I think the moment we go, oh, yeah, we got this. We know exactly how this X, X, Y, and Z work. And I think we operate under that assumption because otherwise it kind of makes you crazy. But we really don't. There's so many things we don't understand. And I wanted to bring a little of that to the book, which is there are really no hard and fast answers to all of it because that's true of real life. We don't really understand. And I, I also think that the idea of reality being plastic, which was a great word that you used, um, is part of the most frightening thing I can think of. If you cannot trust your own perspective, if something seems real to you and you only know by talking to other people that it's, you know, not real, and I'm putting that in air quotes, then how do you, how do you process, how do you go through life? How do you how do you do that because you know mm-hmm. if you can't if you can't trust yourself i just think honestly that t- to me is a theme uh, that it, like i said that that scares me um and i think that that is something i wanted to maintain because if i gave you a solid answer on claire or even some of the other you know then then everything fits neatly into a box and i didn't want everything to fit neatly in a box
0: mm-hmm. more and more i'm coming to love horror stories that don't fit neatly into a box I even have a metaphor for it that I'm I'm still trying to articulate more clearly. It's still a bit clumsy, but I have this thing about horror stories being like a jigsaw puzzle with too many pieces. That's great. I like when there are there are pieces left over because it means that there are there are different ways to put the picture together, but it's never ever fully done. Um it's a really clumsy metaphor that I've repeated about six times on this podcast. So sorry listeners, but I am still working on it. Um in terms of your novel there were times in this where i was fully expecting the the big reveal of everything that's happened so far to claire is a dream and she's she she's back in the room and she hasn't escaped and she's you know i, I was i i never knew really until the very end where the parameters of of reality really were <laughs>
1: That's awesome. I mean, that's that's sort of what I wanted is I, I really wanted you to like Claire enough to connect with her, to care about her and be invested in what's happening to her, but not so much that you didn't have some skepticism about what was happening and whether she could be trusted. Mm-hmm. Because what honestly, Claire is very clear that she does not trust herself. So if your narrator is straight up saying, I, I don't know, I, I really don't know, then you sort of have to make the decision. All right, I'm going to make this leap and I'm going to go along with your story, but there's going to be a part of me that's going to be like... Mm, I'm not so mm-hmm. sure it, you know, and I love what you said about, you know, her waking. I wouldn't, I would not do that because that's sort of, uh, I would get a lot of angry emails about this. whole thing was a dream, um, <laughs> uh, but it does remind me of, I don't know if you ever watched uh, Buffy, the vampire slayer, but one of my favorite episodes, and I don't remember all of it in terms of, cause I haven't watched it in a while, but it's one where, um, She seems to be in a mental hospital and this whole thing about being a vampire slayer is her imagination and dealing with, you know, the emotional trauma of her parents' divorce and whatever. And, you know, there are various moments in the episode where she keeps like waking up. And then in the end, you know, she's back fully in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer Slayer world and you think everything's okay. And then the last scene is her, the version of her in the mental institution kind of like comatose and just sort of sitting there. And you're like,
0: ooh, <laughs> what's yeah. what's
1: real and what's not real?
0: Um, I've never seen Buffy. I, and I, I always kind of admit that with some chagrin because I feel like I should hang up my goth credentials. Um, never seen a single moment of it. Terrible, I know. How I would describe it, uh, this is to make a kind of neat, kind of trip back to Alien for a second, is in Aliens, when right at the start, that scene where she... She wakes up from a dream, and then the chest burster starts to come out of her own stomach, and then she wakes up again. This entire novel feels like that—that you're never quite sure what ontological state you're in.
1: That thing in the highest compliment I can possibly conceive of. Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> there you go. Because
1: that I remember. I remember watching that opening uh, for the first time, and yeah, because you're yes, because then you don't know. It, it, it definitely, it's it's insidious because it implants that doubt in your mind. And then you're like, well, at any point is, you know, what's really happening? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so I hope it's not going too far to say that sound plays a significant role in this novel. And, and the title alone suggests that, you know, dead silence, auditory stuff is relevant. Um and sound is such a challenge for prose, especially kind of subliminal sound, which is what we're sometimes dealing with here. And I wondered what inspired that aspect of the book.
1: I'm going to have to be a little careful here. Um, yeah. So let me address some of that, and then some of it I can't address until until people have... If you and I want to talk about it offline, I can do that. Um, but okay. I don't. I feel like if I answer too much, it'll give too much away. But auditory... So. This is a phenomenon and people have talked about it before, but I don't know how many have you ever been falling asleep and you think you hear someone call your name. I have had that. And it's not because it's the middle of the night. Um, I have had that happen. I know other people have had that happen. And that to me is absolutely freaky and it's just your brain doing what your brain does. Um, And I think that's certainly part of this is the idea that you don't know what you're hearing or you hear something to me. That's always one of the things that makes me sort of like edgy is mm-hmm. if I hear something and somebody else doesn't hear it, and that's a thing with me, particularly um, when I was a, a kid, I had a dream, um, a nightmare that I still remember to this day about uh, boys from my class whispering at the foot of my bed. That's a thing, I, and I woke my parents up and made them come in and whatever. I was like a little, um, and to this day, whispering bothers me. If it's if I can barely hear, it. you know those um what are those called AS ASMR videos yeah. Um, yeah. I can't, I can't, they they literally make me feel nauseous because I, I just, I can't. So any, so I think some of this is my personal fears are sort of inflicted on this. So I find any anything like that where there's and you're picking up on something and nobody else is, or there's something just out of the range of hearing. I, I don't know. It just bothers me. It just really bothers me. So, um, and in terms of the other stuff, I think that was a study that talks about how weird things affect our perception that we don't even realize. I mean some of it is about, you know, what we are our, our field of vision or our range in terms of the, you know, like ultraviolet and whatever all that. We we see a very we're only a very narrow spectrum. And it's the same thing actually with auditory. We only are consciously aware of certain, yeah. So there's, yeah, <laughs> that's as far as I'm yeah. going to go. <laughs>
0: no, I, that, that's fine. That's fine. It's interesting, actually, because I have that exactly that same thing about if I can hear something that someone else can't, it freaks me out. And I don't know why. I lie in bed. I often have, I'll hear like a low rumbling noise in my ear, like a tinn- tinnitus sort of thing. And I'll turn to my wife and say, Do you hear that? And she'll try and hear it. And like, No, she can't. It's almost certainly I'm hearing my own bloodstream or something. And I'm never able to even explain to myself, let alone someone else, why that bothers me. Because, you know, what is there to be frightened of there? But something about it is unnerving. And uh, yeah, so this this book plays all of those nerve endings.
1: I am exactly that same way. Like, do you hear that clicking? What's that clicking? Do you hear that? And everyone's like, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean two things to throw at you. These aren't really questions. This is just uh, things you may find interesting uh, because there were two things that this book put me in mind of. And I will just say, listeners, that these are not spoilers. So don't extrapolate from this to think you know what happens in the book. They're just tangential references. Have you ever heard of the phenomenon of the Brocken spectre?
1: I have not. No, no. Please explain.
0: So it's a phenomenon. um, Well, it's a kind of widespread phenomenon, but there is a particular case of it a particular singular instance that happens on a mountain in Scotland and there's something of the experience that i think resonates with the nature of the supernatural in your book as i say not a spoiler so there's a mountain in Scotland called ben macdui or ben macdui depending on people pronounce it and it's the second highest mountain in Scotland and there is a um, for centuries, there's been a haunting presence known as the Grey Man of Ben Macdui, And what basically happens is people go hiking up this mountain. And after a certain elevation, they start to get an overwhelming sense of panic. And they don't know why. There's no cause. And then quite often they will see this gigantic grey figure emerge from the mist that, that always shrouds this mountain. Uh, and they flee and people report getting back below a certain elevation line. And it's like the terror just pops and just dissipates. And it's always fascinating me. And they think they've they've kind of solved it because they think what it is, is a mixture of infrasound, this kind of sound phenomenon that, that causes panic in the human mind or whatever. I don't know quite how it works. And this phenomenon of the broken spectre, which is when your own shadow is projected by the sun, onto mist in front of you, but in an elongated way. And they think those two things come together to create this singular nexus of absolute terror. (laughs) But...
1: That is so fascinating oh my gosh also these people who keep hiking up there why do you keep going up there Stop
0: oh <laughs> well, I keep saying I'm going up there I've got to I want to go and experience it to see if it happens I want to go armed with what I think is a scientific rationale and see if it happens to me but you can see can't you knowing what you do and what I know how that has a slight resonance with your story there, there is some overlap there with the potential nature of the subjective supernatural in your book
1: Yes, there was, um, and I think I can talk about this in that same vein, that it's not really a spoiler at all, is that um, there was a study, and I think I read about it in Wired uh, magazine or, or something like that, that talks about um human beings it sort of gets back to what i was saying there is a certain level of sound that you will begin to see things Mm -hmm. it affects like your central nervous system so like there was a fan in this lab where these people were working and no one wanted to go in there they didn't know about the fan they just felt like this overwhelming sense of dread and they would see things out of the corner of their eye and then they finally figured out well they think it's this fan that's operating at this certain decibel level or whatever um there is also something that i had just seen on um I think it's on the Science Channel. There's some. I think it's a bridge in. It might be Scotland. I'm. I'm not sure. Where dogs keep jumping off. It's really oh, horrifying.
0: Yeah, I think it's in Wales. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but I know exactly what you mean.
1: Yeah, I and I, I wondered when I saw that. I wondered if it was sort of like, because they can, you know, hear and see things that we can't. So I yeah. want or smell things that we can't. Um, but yeah, I yeah, that's that's. See again, I I love all of this stuff. That's why I put it in a book because there is no way. There's no way you would get me anywhere near any of these things. <laughs>
0: I mean the other thing I'll say before I move on is have you ever this is this is an obscure one now but have you ever seen the X-Files episode called Drive?
1: I've seen almost all X-Files episodes. I don't know them by the title. Can you give me a little bit more the, about that one?
0: Yeah, it's the one that stars um oh my god what's the, what's the guy called from Breaking Bad? The mate like Malcolm in the Middle's dad, what's he called? You know what I mean? Ah uh, oh
1: um yeah what is his i can picture him clearly
0: yeah one of the most famous actors in the world yeah it stars him uh and it's it's about this guy who him and his wife they have to drive east or west or something at a certain speed because if they don't the pressure in their brain grows and grows and grows until their head explodes and I remember
1: this one oh yeah, my gosh now i'm gonna have it, to, i'll have to find it
0: it was a real primal terror for me when I watched it because the, 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 it's not actually an X-File. What the There's nothing supernatural. What is revealed at the end is that the Navy near to his house have been doing experiments with sound and with frequencies and with vibration, and it's basically done something to the bones in his head, so they're rattling at a certain frequency that can only be alleviated by driving fast west. I mean, it's utter nonsense. Do you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. your book, because of its... Emphasis on sound and auditory stuff and vibration and all these things um, t- took me right back to watching that for the first time and how much it just, it horrified me in a way I'd never know to articulate. I don't quite understand why it bothered me so much. That may be why I'm terrified when I get tinnitus. Maybe I think I'm hearing the thing that's going to make my head explode. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really put me in a mind. Your book put me in a mind of that episode of The X-Files. One of the most frightening well, things I've I- seen. So that's, that's not a bad thing.
1: I love that. And I'm going to find I'm, it sounds familiar. It's been a long time since I've seen some of the episodes. I de- and I was obsessed with the X-Files as well. So I, would, I wouldn't I would put it past being influenced by that at some point. <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting, though, because I, I feel like the, most, the fr- most frightening episodes of X-Files or anything or any book to me is not necessarily the aliens or the inexplicable stuff. I, I think I'm okay with it. it's when we do stuff to each other. And I feel like that kind of hits on that, which is that, you know, we all are sort of okay in a way or expected to be afraid of the inexplicable or expected to be afraid of something otherworldly. But, you know, wow, how terrible is it? How terrifying is it when you find out the links that people will go to, to damage other people, you know, or the, or the lack of concern. And I feel, so it's interesting to me that that is one of the ones that really bothered you because it sounds like one that would bother me as well, because, you know, Though the the example I always use is in Aliens, right, in the second movie, the aliens are sort of just doing what they're doing, right? They're trying to protect their young. They're trying to survive, whatever. The real bad guy is Paul Reiser. Spoilers, by the way, for anybody who has not seen this almost 40-year-old movie. Um, You know, and that to me makes... So in a way, I'm almost more chilled by him than I am by the aliens because, you know, dude, you're human. We're supposed to all be on the same side and you're not. So that's interesting to me,
0: well, uh, very much because the that comes into your book because you have an awful lot to say, sometimes implied sometimes overtly about you know corporations, and w- with Jeff Bezos <laughs> and his billionaire chums jetting off into orbit these days, you know the idea of a spacefaring corporation suddenly seems not so fictional, which I can't believe. <laughs> but the corporate entities in your novel are greedy and they are entirely focused on profit over life i mean are they an extension of what you see happening here on earth already is is it is it that are you, are you looking into that anti human sentiment as as another form of horror
1: yes 100% so i have to admit i i wrote this Uh, initially back in, I think, like 2016, 2017. So it, it, you know, we, there was definitely interest to Bezos and um, even Virgin Galactic. And I can't remember the other, all the other SpaceX, you know, they were definitely moving toward privatization of space Mm -hmm. exploration. And that intrigued me because of course, once you get into, you know, the private, then all of a sudden it's about where they want to put their money and it's not necessarily for The good of all humanity, which we hope you know, NASA and that sort of thing is working toward. Um, But they also have a lot more disposable (laughs) income because they're wringing it out of everybody else, um, meaning the private corporations. And I worked uh, for this isn't a secret, but for several Fortune 500 companies as a copywriter for about um, ten or fifteen years before I started writing books. And I want to be clear: the people that I worked with were wonderful. The other employees were wonderful. But sometimes you saw things, and you just think, you know. like, where there's no humanity in this, you know, mm. there's no humanity in in any of these things that we're doing. Um, you know, yes, you're trying to protect the company from lawsuits, but then setting it up for people to be hurt or damaged in some way just because they didn't read the fine print. So, yes, that was an intentional message because I, that's based on on my my own experience. Um, and it, it's very interesting to me, you know, going from working in a corporation. I then wrote for a while full time, and now I'm working at a school, and the school is so different. They struggle obviously with. Um, with getting enough uh, support financially and, and all of that, but boy, the people who work there um, will do just about anything to support each other and support the kids. So it just, yeah, I went, I feel like I went from one end to the other, <laughs> but it was the corporation message in there was, was intentional.
0: Yeah. It, well, I, it's, I liked it a lot because I'm obviously, I mean, I'm nominally anti-corporation, you know, I try my best to not, to not, but then again, I've got an Apple phone, you know, and I, on occasion, I break my own, about not using amazon because i have a kindle and it's so difficult that's the thing isn't it it's like you know with the best intentions the true power of these corporations is that even people who are opposed to them on occasion can barely avoid using them
1: right you can't i mean that's that's the i think that's the danger of it i was explaining it to someone you know, uh, someone was asking me earlier this week, like, do authors get paid more depending on where you buy the book? I think they were asking in terms of where should I buy your book for you to get the most benefit. And I was like, well, it doesn't. You you can you can buy it anywhere. My the royalties are set up in a way that it, that it doesn't matter, right? The format matters more than that. But the reason why we're asking you to support to support local bookstores or even Barnes and Noble or any sort of physical book chain is because or physical bookstore is because eventually, if we don't, Amazon is going to be your only choice. And then your prices are going to be under their control, which then means the publisher will be sort of beholden to make deals based on what they still can make money off of, which means authors in the end could end up getting screwed. Is that too strong a word? (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like that. So I'm keenly aware of that. And yet, you know, for the last two years, we've been struggling in a pandemic. And you know what? Amazon has taken a lot of my money because that I I needed stuff and I couldn't get, to where i needed to go yeah. so yeah it's 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 ugly and i don't i don't have an and i'm not anti-capitalism i, I you know that's fine it's when we start to we, we lose our humanity completely i think yeah. in the in the, for the sake of profits that's where i get really uncomfortable again i'm the daughter of a pastor and a teacher so um you know i lean more toward the human side of things or i try to mm-hmm. anyway
0: people keep saying to me that i should do um like amazon links um, as a way of making some money for the show, because I'm I'm endlessly trying to make this thing financially viable. Um, and, it, and supposedly with Amazon links, you can you know set, direct someone from a link I do, and I get a percentage and all that. And I just think it's a slippery slope because I, I I really don't want to put money in Amazon's pockets and not in local bookstores' pockets. I just it's a step too far for me. So thank you to all the people who've, who've suggested it, but there's a reason I'm not doing it. I really don't want to fund jeff bezos i don't want him to have a re- I, don't, I don't want him to have a nicer class of dehydrated meal when he gets stranded on mars you know i don't <laughs> that's um, that's
1: exactly well, what i was joking about the other day i'm like well you know that's the thing is they're just gonna they're just gonna leave us behind yeah anybody who can't afford to go al- i mean and that's yeah they're, they're well they'll wave at us for mars i suppose um Indeed. but yeah yes <laughs>
0: Yeah, the, the best we can hope for is a a future in which the the Earth is is orbited by asphyxiated billionaires. But maybe that's maybe that's too far. Um, let's <laughs> let's just go to the book slightly before we finish, um, because I, we mentioned sound and and that is you know a unique aspect of the environment you write about. But there are plenty of others that you had to consider when writing this book that. I wouldn't have considered that you had to consider them, you know, to use a clumsy sentence. And one of them, for example, is anti-gravity, because I know that when I try to write action scenes or, or even scenes that involve a lot of movement, I tend to get really bogged down in the technicalities. I'm, I'm terrible at it. And reading this book, I was like, you must have had so much to think about, because how on earth did you just keep the logistics of fighting and fleeing and exploring? In anti gravity, how did you do that?
1: Uh, I will confess that was possibly the hardest part of writing this or revising this is going back and going, oh no, I forgot. You know, they can't do that because there's no gravity. Or oh no, they're wearing a spacesuit; they can't, <laughs> you know, feel whatever because they've got gloves on. So I, def- I I'm glad to hear that it worked. Um, and I, I, I hope that I did not <laughs> miss something in there. It, it was very difficult. It was very frustrating, and sometimes because I wanted to do something, but I knew that I couldn't do it the way that you would do it. If you had gravity, you had to be very precise and very like, think about how somebody would actually do this if you were in a zero gravity Mm -hmm. environment and the dangers of it. Um, And honestly, you know, I was very nervous about that because unlike a a lot of people who write science fiction, I don't have a science background. So I was really relying on the reading that I could do and, and what I thought that people would be able to do in that environment. Um, And you know I do feel on the on the plus side of it, you know the downside being that it's difficult. The plus side of it is that that adds to that element of things being outside of your control, which I think adds to the sort of fear part of it. You know, if you miss this handhold, you're in trouble. If you you know you're no longer tethered, so you're you could be you know this this is dangerous. Um, and I think that that adds like a nice, la- like another layer of tension. Um, mm. But it was, it, it, it was, <laughs> it was not easy. And in fact, you'll notice like as soon as I'm going to be careful here, but during a lot of the, you know, where we're running around and bad things are happening, there's gravity because I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I, I imagine you sitting there reading like draft 86 and then just being like, ah, oh, shit. I, you know, I forgot <laughs> they, they can't do that. <laughs> like that's, that
1: is. That is exactly right. Actually, there's a point it was during, I don't know if it was during copy edits, or um, it it was well into the process for the book. And there's a description where Claire is holding someone's hand and guiding them. And uh, there's a description of, you know, like, you know, hand being warm or hand being cool. I don't remember what it is. And I went, oh, crap. They can't, she's got gloves on. She can't, Mm. this person has gloves on. They, they, You can't feel what they're, you know, okay, got to add this back in and, you know, trying to make sure that the helmets are another thing, not just that, not just that you're wearing them or not wearing them, but that you have to keep track of them. Because if we're going to go back to an environment that doesn't have air, you got to have your helmet. Um, Yeah. So there's very much of this, oh man, I hope I didn't write a scene where they took their helmets off and then they're back (laughs) in. There's no oxygen.
0: and then you just await the, uh, the the Twitter messages from your readers where, where 3,000 people tell you the same fact, yeah. I, um, I
1: was trying really hard to avoid that. I was <laughs> trying really hard to avoid that.
0: <laughs> I, I've discovered that that is a part of writing that no one warns you about, just keeping track of the details. It, it hadn't occurred to me that that would be so onerous until I started trying to write just the, 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 the tiny continuity things you've got to keep track of. And when you've got zero grav and stuff, it becomes a whole different axis, <laughs> you know. Um, actually, speaking of, of different axis, there's, there's a scene really early in the novel that I just loved when they're searching for the Aurora, but they can't see it. And they know it's around because the, the, like, the little beacon thing is bleeping. And they're like, well, where is it? It's not in the field of view. And then slowly it dawns on them that it's underneath them. And it's described as this extra blind spot because our kind of earthbound conditioning makes us forget that there is no down in space and, and that, you know, there isn't. things can be below you as easily as they can be above you, but those terms are completely subjective, up and down, etc. And it's a great scene because right away, it just shows us how inherently odd and uncanny that environment is and that we're just way out of our sensory comfort zone Mhm. Yeah,
1: I so I ha- say I I have to claim I think that was um a meme that I saw somewhere being a Star Trek Star Wars person where they talked about it's kind of funny that in if you ever see, you know, in Star Trek or even Star Wars or anywhere, if there are two ships meeting, they're, they're nose to nose, right? They come up nose to nose. But in theory, you wouldn't need to do that. You you could be upside down and angled in all different directions mm-hmm. because it, it doesn't, space is, it doesn't matter. But then they said, but this is what it would look like. And there's a picture of it. And it's hilarious because it this looks so wrong because we're so used to thinking gravity and the way that we operate here. So that was sort of where that came from was this idea that, you know, we don't think about down because we don't have to think about down, but in space down is an option, you know, like there's, there is no down really. So therefore all directions are equally possible. Um, and that was really where that came from. Cause I just thought that was so interesting.
0: There's a, there's a beautiful nihilism in that. All directions are equally down.
1: <laughs> that is true. That is yes. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I suppose we could flip it the other way. All directions are equally up, but yes. <laughs>
0: You could, but it's a horror <laughs> podcast, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm decline minded. <laughs> um, wh- here's a question to to end, on, I suppose, bit of a silly one, but I've got to ask because of the topic. Would you go into space given the chance?
1: <laughs> I want to say yes because I have to admit there was a part of me, like in my being a big like space science fiction nerd. When I turned about thirty five, I was like, oh. I'm never going to live long enough to get to go to another planet. Like it was actually a sad moment for me. <laughs> and then, you know, but then I realized it and I have always said um, that I wouldn't, you know, until they have like the enterprise or something like that, that I would never, I would, you know, I'm not, I'm not good in small spaces. So, but really more than that, like, you know, I'm not going until there's a bathroom and a cruise ship type scenario. And I mm-hmm. don't even think I would do that. My in-laws very generously took us on an ocean cruise Um a few years ago and i have uh, anxiety issues in general and in being an enclosed space where all you can see is water surrounding you had a bit of a hard time with that so i think i'll continue my um space exploration safely from home
0: (laughs) yeah me too because also what no one ever factors in when they say would you go to space is they're really saying would you go to space with jeff bezos
1: oh yeah indeed no
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No one needs that. Well, this been a wonderful chat. Would you mind finishing off with the, the, the last two questions that I ask everybody? Is that okay?
1: That would be great.
0: So I ask everyone if they would recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why.
1: Sure. So one of my favorite this leans more supernatural horror than it does science fiction, but uh, Ninth House by Leigh Bardugo. It is the story of a young woman who is going to Yale, and Lee, I think herself, is a Yale graduate. And one of the interesting details about Yale in real life is that it does have all these secret societies. The one people seem to know about the most is Skull and Bones. I think that's what it's called. Um, but there's multiple on campus. And in the real world, they're kind of like fraternities where people know each other. The Bushes, the presidential Bushes were um, involved in Skull and Bones and whatever. Um, But in this version, in her world, those are secret societies that operate on blood magic or dark magic in order to gain power, whether it's power over the economy, power over in like, you know, uh, there's one ritual at the beginning of the book where someone's trying to write a book. Um, And needs it to be a bestseller. And so they're creating this dark magic ritual. Um, This young woman, Alex, who is brought to Yale after a very difficult childhood is of interest to them, because what she can do is she can see ghosts without a ritual. So they can see spirits and they can do that, but it requires this whole spell and whatever, but she is naturally gifted. And so they want her there. But of course, there are things that are going on on this campus um, in this, you know, secret society, magic ritual stuff that shouldn't be going on. Um, And it is just horrifying and delightful. And I just, you know, there are certain books you go, oh, I wish I'd written this. I mean, I don't, we write completely differently and I would never do it justice the way that she did. I wish I had written this. So that is my recommendation.
0: Well, that's a great one. I haven't read that, and I need to for a specific reason, because I had an idea years ago for a book um, that sounds like it's treading worryingly similar uh, kind of lines. And before I kind of really think about trying to write it, I need to read that and make sure it's not just been done already. (laughs) Because it could be one of those where it's like, (laughs) like I said about you, an alien, you know, at at a kind of top level, you could say, well, it's kind of similar but very very different and i i want to know whether i whether there's any purpose in me trying to write this book um, so yeah i need to check it out the ninth house
1: well there's there's always um... The thing is, is that even if it were fairly similar, it's never told in the exact same way. Like your voice is going to make it different too. So I always, you know, because I I know there's a thing with writers where they're working on something super, you know, they're super excited about it as a secret. And then they see the publisher's, you know, marketplace deal going up and it's like, oh, that's my book. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can't tell that from three sentences or my description of it. So yeah, definitely read it. And if it's really something that's important to you, you should write it because I want more books like that. So please do write it.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. That's my pep talk for the day. Um, my last question, the best one. Stacy. what truly scares you? <laughs>
1: um, I have a silly answer and I have a serious answer. Do you want both or either one?
0: Go serious first. It's, it's easy to end the conversation on a bright note after a silly answer. So here's
1: my silly answer. I'm terrified of birds specifically dead birds, freak me out. And it's one of those things that you don't understand until I got into a psychology class and realized it's an inherited phobia. I have never had anything bad happen to me with birds. Um, but my mother, who grew up on a farm, um, had an experience where they would kill chickens for food. And the thing about a chicken running with his head chopped off, you know, that that saying that we use or that we use in the United States, I don't know if it's worldwide, um, meaning you're busy and you're kind of running around senselessly. That is a real thing. So apparently when she was a little girl, um, my grandfather was killing a chicken for dinner and chopped the head off and it ran toward her and got blood all over her because it was running around headless. And she is absolutely terrified of birds. And therefore, when I saw her react to that, now I am like ridiculously afraid. Like you know, we were in Hawaii once, and um, an outdoor restaurant, and a little sparrow came like hopping up under the table, like there was a tablecloth. And the fact that I could no longer see if it was near my feet, this little sparrow, probably not even you know, like a like a size of my hand. I, I ha- we had to like I had to push away from the table, and I could not eat. And my husband's like, "What is wrong with you?" I yeah. So I'm scared of birds because my mother is afraid of birds. <laughs>
0: I don't, I don't. I don't. That's silly at all. I think they're clearly plotting something. I remember going to Venice once, and I went to Saint Mark's Square, and I I bought a load of like bird feed, and I was I was basically wearing a suit of birds. Um. And oh that's no, just, no!
1: Yeah, I that. my skin is 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 raising goosebumps right now just even you talking about it.
0: Okay, <laughs> that's why I told you. And and go on and what's your more serious <laughs> one? What's your serious answer?
1: My serious one is um, that idea. So I've read a study um, that creativity and mental illness are sort of linked. um, And that doesn't surprise me because a lot of writers I know struggle with anxiety or depression or um, even other various types. And so I am one of those people who is absolutely, the thing that I wrote about, about hearing things that people don't hear or seeing things that people don't see, the idea that I can't trust my reality terrifies me. The idea that one day I will be seeing things or hearing something that somebody else doesn't it absolutely shakes me to my core. So that is that is something that, and I mean that you know when you, I had a grandmother who just passed away um, last January actually um, from uh, dementia, and that was that was just so terrifying to me because you know she was there but not there, and I think that that is yeah. So that scares me. That's that's like the serious answer of what scares me.
0: Well, yeah. I all I can say to that is I know where you're coming from. Yeah, the, my sense that my fear that reality will suddenly change, or that I'll realise the rules don't apply, or that something will happen which will shake my my sense of stability in that way, yeah, haunts me continually. And yet I read horror stories, which doesn't make any sense, but um I genuinely loved it. I mean, people get I think from my the tone of my voice and like my enthusiasm and stuff when i really love a book and i really loved this one dead silence i believe it's out february the 8th uh from Tor in in the uk and north america
1: that is that is correct
0: yeah everyone can check it out and i i just hope it's i recommend it it's a piece of very clever elevated pulp and i hope you take that in the absolute best way that it is in
1: absolutely 100% my goal with anything is I want people to have a I want people to enjoy reading it and have a good time and that's what that that's what that is to me
0: right well SA Barnes all that's left to say is thank you for talking scared
1: thank you so much for having me I appreciate it
0: One of my favourite things that Stacy said in that conversation was that thing about why haunted houses, or spaceships, need to be big. Because whatever is around the corner is scarier than what's in front of you. So there need to be corners and other places that things can be happening. That is so true, and it applies to all the classic books, and particularly the classic movies. One of the most famous being Val Lewton's Cat People from 1942, or Robert Wise's The Haunting, neither of which shows their monster or ghost at all. And it's also true of Ridley Scott's Alien. In my opinion, the reason that the original is so singularly frightening is because you barely see the creature, and almost never clearly Prometheus and Covenant don't fail because they get bogged down in lore. I love lore. I can't get enough lore. They fail because the creature is too exposed. It's too understandable. Ridley Scott knew to keep the devil sort of in the dark. And I mentioned this because Stacey pulls off the same trick. Though Dead Silence is full of striking scenes of horror, and some of them are quite beautifully gothic like the one I quoted of the girl floating above the bed, the truth of the evil on board the Aurora is never wholly disclosed. Yes, there's an explanation that works, but it doesn't cover everything. There are still facets of the story left open to interpretation. And honestly, that's why I do mean it when I say that, though the comparisons to other space horror classics are unavoidable, Dead Space is most indebted to The Shining for its true horror roots. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I tore through it in about three days. And it kind of gave me the feeling of when you find an old paperback horror novel in a doctor's waiting room, or you often I found some of my favourite books in the tiny hotel lending library on holiday, and then I get lost in it. I mean, that may have just been me, but I've had some of my best reads picked randomly from an old dusty shelf in the back of a Greek hotel, and, and this book felt like that, a book that you stumble across and then just adore. The best bits of The Shining... The best bits of Alien, but put together in a configuration which does something new with space horror. What's not to love? We've mentioned Alien enough, however, that I want to take this chance to ask listeners a simple question. One that has troubled me for most of my adult life. I've tossed, I've turned, I've tussled, but I'm still not sure. Which is better, Alien or Aliens? That can be your assignment this week. Tell me your opinion. Convince me one way or the other. Knock me off the fence for good. You can do it on social media at TalkScaredPod on Twitter, Insta or TikTok. I'll maybe post a poll and we'll, we can all have a big Twitter fight about it. Or email directly at talkingscaredpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. It's always great to hear from you. Nothing better than a listener saying hi may sound like a small thing, but just think how much of an effort it is in a normal day to take the time to email anybody, let alone a podcaster, so those who do, thanks a million. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, like I've said before, that is the indie podcaster's lifeblood, or you can kind of put your money where your good intentions are and get some sick bonus content as well via Talking Scared Patreon. The link is in the show notes or go direct to TalkingScaredPod slash Patreon.com. Oh, to clear something up, that bridge that Stacy mentioned, the one where the dogs keep leaping to their own deaths, it's called Overton Bridge and it's in Dumbarton in Scotland. So I've done some reading and though it only hit headlines in the early 2000s, stories of dogs acting strangely, often suicidally, go back to the 50s. And up to 50 dogs have died from jumping off the bridge, whilst hundreds and hundreds more have jumped, but thankfully survived. There are loads of theories about optical illusions and local mink populations that are drawing these dogs to the death, you know. But the history of the bridge is also supposedly steeped in druidic practices, so who knows. As a dog lover, I'm just hoping that the fucking thing tumbles into the river sometime soon. Right. That's it for this week. Next time I'm back with a biggie. Thomas ulder Hervelt, author of Hex and his newest mountain horror story Echo, a book that quite literally made me wake up in the night in an almost panic attack. But more on that next week. For now, look up, wish on a star, but set your phases to stun. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.